You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Let me start this new series called Christmas with No Filter. And the idea behind the series is Pastor Keith and I are going to be teaching about those aspects of the Christmas story that we either skip over or we certainly put a filter over it. Because uh, we love the romantic, let's just admit it, we love the romantic, nostalgic, warm side of Christmas, don't we? You love the the warm feeling that comes with Christmas. And there are some unfiltered aspects of the Christmas story that are a little, like, really, that's in there? We're going to look at that today. So I want to start by asking you a question, and it may be the silliest question I've ever asked this church. Have you ever traveled? Because there's over 70 nationalities in this church. I'm assuming we are well-traveled people. Over the course of my life, I've had the privilege to visit some great cities. I've been in Cairo, Egypt. I mean, what an incredible city, steeped in antiquity, history, one of the cradles of human history, one of the great civilizations of this world, right in the north of Africa. I've been in cities like Amsterdam. Amsterdam is such a quaint city. The beautiful architecture, the windmills, uh, you can see much how the Dutch have borrowed from around the world as they explored and they were early explorers. Uh, I've been in cities like uh, New Delhi, India. Over 11 million people in the city. It is packed and it is growing. You can see as people move from the rural areas into the city, the industrial energy of the city is epic. I've been in a city like Frankfurt, Germany, where old meets new. You have this beautiful modern cityscape against these stone uh, historical buildings. It's become a transit area for continental Africa, continental Asia. Now, all four of these cities have something in common. I've been in all four of these cities, but I've never visited one of them. How? Well, I mean, in Cairo, Egypt, I sat on my plane as it was refueled on the tarmac, and the only pyramids I saw was when we took off and I looked out my window and said, oh, there's the pyramids. Uh, In New Delhi, I was there to connect, so I literally moved from one end of the airport to another. So at least I got off the plane, right? At least I got off the plane. In Amsterdam, I was trying to remember this week how many times I have slept in the airport in Amsterdam. In my 20s, I had no money, and I'm traveling, I'm doing missions work and other things, and I'm in Amsterdam, and I can't afford a hotel. And they they put these, you know, so all night I heard this announcement, do not leave your luggage alone. It kept waking me up. It was miserable, but I've been there multiple times. In Frankfurt, again, I've slept in this airport at least twice, twice that I remember. And they have the bars over the seats so you can't stretch out. You know, uh, what a great experience. Technically, I've been in those cities. I mean, technically, if you ask for a list of cities I've been in, they'd be on the list. But we all know, right? We all know that I can't quite say I've visited these cities. I don't even know them. I saw them flying in and flying out. Now, there are other cities I've had the opportunity to visit that I know a little bit better. Paris, France. It's the city of love. Yeah, city of love. And, you know, I visited this city of love while I was still unmarried in my early 20s with a couple of buddies from college. What a waste, what a waste. 
So there's got to be another opportunity another day. But Paris, France, beautiful city. I've been in Kampala, Uganda. You know what I loved about Kampala, Uganda? I've never been around so many entrepreneurs incredible amount of people uh, that are starting their businesses as they move in from rural areas. It's a city that has outpaced its infrastructure and is now modernizing at such a, a radical rate. It's incredible to be around that. I've been in cities like, uh, oh, London. I mean, how many have been in London? I've been there many times. Again, like Paris, what a rich city in terms of uh, uh, architecture and history, and there's so many great things to experience. I've been in cities like Chennai, India. The best masala tea or chai I ever had was right in Chennai. Some of the best foods. You gotta understand, I'm a maritimer. Spices where I grew up were salt and pepper. So man, they know how to do spice, and it was amazing. What a, a growing Southeast Asian city, uh, a beautiful people, it was so much fun. I've been in cities like Jerusalem, Israel. You know, this was a city that was so unique to me when I first experienced it, actually with Pastor Keith and a guy named, what was his name? Oh, Dr. Van Johnson, yeah. Uh, I, and I experienced it with them. You know, I've been in many cities, but beyond the obvious richness of its religious and spiritual implications, it was also, too, just a unique city. As you see, all these religions converge, and they mingle in the marketplace, but they all kind of live segregated. It's a very interesting, different type of city. Now, I have... These things, cities all have something in common. I have visited them. I have seen their tourist attractions. I have eaten their food. Some of you know I am shameless in trying new languages. I've tried all their languages. I've butchered them all. I've done that all. I, I have experienced, I've been in the homes of locals there. But how many know? There's a bit of a gap between visiting a place and making a place home. Home is a whole different level. This is what makes the coming of Jesus so controversial and so puzzling to many people in that first century. When Jesus arrived, he arrived nothing like they thought he would as Messiah, Savior, and King of, of not just Israel, but of the world. They anticipated him like a dignitary or a king, you know, driving with his cavalcade and his handlers and pulling up beside the masses out of his stretched chariot and getting out to shake the hands of the common men and women, kiss a few babies, get back in his stretched chariot, go to his palace, isolate it from all of the, you know, all the stuff of the common people. And Jesus surprised everyone because the Messiah showed up and he made his home among common people. He made his home among some of the most vulnerable people. He made his home around a less educated, less influential part of that nation and people. He didn't live in a palace. He understands the daily grind. He understands the daily hardships. He understands the daily search for, for food and work. This was a part of his reality, and it was shocking to those who were looking for a Messiah to come. He didn't come at all like they thought he would. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you got a phone, you can pull your phone out and jump on our Wi-Fi. Matthew chapter 2, starting verse 13, we're going to read a portion of Scripture that I can tell you that I don't know if anyone reads during the Christmas season. I know this, pastors avoid it this portion of scripture. Because in the Christmas story, this is not nostalgic, warm. This is unfiltered. But this was a part of the world that Jesus came into. We're going to talk about where he makes his home. And wherever Jesus makes his home, 
what follows it. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, here's the account in the Christmas unfiltered story. It says this, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Not exactly that warm nativity scene so far. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary and his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Then it says in verse 18, a cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. And this next verse, I want you to remember it because at the end of the message, we'll revisit it. In verse 18, it says this, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. Verse 21. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler in Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in the town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, can you tell why this is a part of the Christmas story we often don't read? I mean, the Christmas story is about glad tidings, good news, joy, right? But this is a very dark episode. But friends, I think that's a lot like our experience in life. A lot like our experience in life. Some of us go into Christmas seasons and it is a dark episode. Or some of us have traversed dark episodes even this last year. And if you haven't yet in life, you will someday. It's part of the human experience in this broken and fallen world. And in the backdrop of this, there's a great truth, a kernel here. If you'll listen and lean in, it can ignite hope well beyond this gathering today. And it's simply this about Christmas. Christmas doesn't mean the absence of darkness. Christmas means there's a light in the darkness. And here's the powerful thing about this light in the darkness. The light of Jesus pushes back darkness. In this episode, there are three lessons from three verses in Matthew chapter 2 that I want to unpack with you. Herod has just killed all these boys ages two-year-old and under in an effort to eradicate the Messiah, the Savior, the King, to make sure there was no one that could contend for the throne. And this reveals a story, this reveals a truth about Jesus that's as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Simply put, wherever Jesus makes his home, hostility follows. He he came into a world that was hostile. It was dangerous and it was difficult. But here's the interesting thing. The arrival of Jesus provokes this hostility. In 2018, we have, if if you've made Jesus a home in your heart, 
there is hostility in our heart against Jesus. And I'm going to show this to you in a moment. Here's what's going on. In verse 16, Herod Herod has been tricked by the, by the wise men. The wise men or the magi, they had come from the east. They had seen a star and they came to Herod's court and they said, Herod, where's the new king? And Herod's like, whoa, what do you mean new? I'm the king. And he gets his scholars together and they look at the prophecies in scripture and they determine that Bethlehem was the place where the new king was to be born. So he goes and he says to the wise men, hey, go to Bethlehem. Find the new king. If you don't mind, come back to me. Give me his coordinates because I want to honor him. Code for Herod meaning kill him. <laughs> and, and so the, the, the wise men went. They found Jesus. But they, the wise men became wise to what Herod was up to. And they took off and they went another way and they never came back. And when Herod discovered this, he quickly did the math of when they said the star first appeared and he realized any male child ages two and under in the Bethlehem area could be the Messiah. And so he had them killed. Now, what's interesting, historians would say that probably there was about 20 to 30 male children that were killed. I used to think it was a lot larger, but Bethlehem at that time was not that large. About 20 to 30 probably male children that were killed. And the actions of Herod, if you know him, they're pretty typical. He was a brutal leader, a very insecure leader. He had many of his sons put to death, but that's a story for another day. Not only that, it was typical of a monarch in an ancient culture. If somebody was a possible usurper to the throne, you'd have them killed along with their entire family, anyone related, anyone that would have claim to the throne. So what is happening here in Matthew chapter 2 is typical, but just because it's typical doesn't make it not terrible. It's terrible what's happening here. Jesus is born in this world and hostility immediately ensues. Provocation happens and their pushback happens. Friends, the same thing happens in our hearts when we allow Jesus to make home in our lives. There's a hostility that we have towards God. The Apostle Paul describes it really well in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. He says it this way. He says, the carnal mind or the natural heart is enmity against God. This little word actually translates meaning is hostile or hates God. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, every human being, whether you're online or right here in Agent Court, 2885 Kennedy Road, well, every human being in their heart, not only do they not it's not about whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, but there's hatred towards God. We hate God. That sounds offensive, doesn't it? Doesn't that bother you? Doesn't that provoke you a little bit? Doesn't that create a little, like, a, wait, 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 a pushback from you? But put yourself in Herod's shoes. How would it be if you were the king of Israel at that time and somebody came and said, where's the new king? And you had no plans for a new king. How would it be if Monday you went to work and your boss introduced you to the person that, hey, they're going to be replacing you? How'd that feel? See, look how warm, you guys are just good with it. Good. Everybody's good with being replaced. Or, or you're at work and there are newer employees coming and they're younger and they work for cheaper and they work longer hours because they don't have to take care of a family at home and all of a sudden you feel the threats. I'm talking about other people, obviously. But some people have these things in life and you want to push back and you feel maybe even a little anger and you feel a little retaliation inside of you because that's a normal response to these things in life. 
And the fact is, every single person, every one of us, has a little bit of Herod in us. Here's the interesting thing about the Bible. The Bible is a story about God, primarily. But in it, you can find yourself if you're willing to look for it. So in Matthew chapter 2, we can actually find ourselves in this story. As brutal as this story is, we can find ourselves in it. There's a little bit of Herod inside of us. You know what that little bit of Herod is? That little bit of Herod is the part of me that wants to contend that I'm in charge. That, that you, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. Anyone ever feel that? You know when you're married... Your wife asks you to do something, and you're going to do it, but you're going to do it when, when you're going to do it, right? What's that about? Well, you know, it's about authority. It's about, it's about I'm not going to be told what to do, when to do, and how to do. There's, a, there's that little piece inside of us, that little heret inside of all of us that pushes back. So here's where the hostility towards God comes that Paul is talking about. See, Jesus comes. And he says things that provokes people. He says things like this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and wife, and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Like, is the weight of that lost on you? I mean, all of that is a weighty, weighty verse Jesus leaves out there. Now, he's not saying hate your parents He's not justifying an upcoming Christmas gathering where you're going to get together with family that you struggle with and you can say, well, Jesus said I should hate you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying comparatively to how much you love me, it almost looks like hatred towards these people because you're that deep in with me. I mean, it's quite a thing. He says, and it provokes people. The large crowds get a little thinner because people want comfort, not challenge. But Jesus loves them enough to give them both. But the comfort comes from the challenge. The challenge precedes the comfort. And he says this. He says, you know, unless you're willing to follow me, unless you're willing to love me more than your own life, you can't be my disciple. You can see it in his interactions with his followers. I I find it interesting. In John 13, he says this to his followers. He says, you can call me teacher and Lord. Lord is someone that's over your life. And rightfully so, for that is what I am. He says, I am Lord, and I'm teacher. You go ahead and call me that, because that's what I am. But then then in Luke chapter 6, he says this, Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? You call me Lord, but you won't do what I say. Why is that? Why won't we do what he says? Well, friends, we, we just sung a moment ago, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And that little bit of Herod inside of us, that little bit of Herod inside of us wasn't so much looking for a king that could tell us what to do. We wanted a forgiver. We wanted a healer. We wanted a friend. We wanted a comforter. And he's all that more. But a king... Because what do you do with a king? You obey a king. But that little part of Herod and I, in me, 
We push back against this. This is why when you read the Gospels, now if you've never read the Bible, listen, I highly recommend it. It is fascinating. It is interesting. Even if you're not a believer, it is absolutely fascinating. Start reading the Gospels. And what you'll quickly discover is everyone that meets Jesus, without exception, everyone that meets Jesus responds in an extreme way. Nobody meets Jesus and moderately responds. There is no moderation. There is extreme response to the person of Jesus. Some who are possessed of evil spirits and demonic activities, they ran from Jesus in terror, in terror when they were in his presence. Others who disagreed with his making God accessible this way, disagreed with his theology, some of them assaulted him with anger, and then some of them bowed their knee and surrendered to him. You know, when you think about the disciples, I love the stories of when Jesus called the disciples, don't you? I love that he goes, follow me, and they leave everything and they go. How extreme is that? If, you, if somebody tapped you on the shoulder today and said, follow me, and you just left everything and you went. Everything. I mean, some of you can't leave your phone for 30 seconds unattended, let alone leave everything and follow. And this was the extreme response that Jesus did. Nobody responds to Jesus moderately. They either were all in or they were not in. They either rejected him or accepted him. They gave him everything or they gave him nothing. Why was no one moderate with Jesus? Because Jesus made some really strong claims. He said he was the king. He said things like this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And this is the part that's hostile towards God. There's a little part of us, friends, that we push back against God's authority in our life. Fair had someone say you've got authority issues? Anyone tell you that before? Here's the, here's the news, friends. You can turn to anyone around you and say that because we all have authority issues. We have authority with issues with God and him asking us or telling us or directing us in life in a way contrary to what we want. So what, what does this mean? Well, if you're a Christian here, it means a number of things. If you're a follower of Jesus here, I, this passage helps you to see a little bit of the fact that you and I have a little bit of Herod still in us. We have residual anger to go out towards God, residual hostility towards the authority of God in our life. There's something in us, that Herod piece. And you know, I love what one theologian said. He said, you'll never be any kind of Christian unless you're willing to fight. Very interesting. When he says this, he's saying that Christianity is not a waltz, it's a fight. It's not a fight against other people. It is a fight for your heart. It is a fight to put Jesus at the center of your life. It is a fight to make him Lord and King of your life. And you know what it's like if you've been serving Jesus for any length of time. You have moments where there are pockets of your life that are holding out, resisting the authority of God. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to live this way. I'm no, nobody can tell me what to do. Those are the areas that are resisting and are hostile to God. So for, for many of us, this is a battle. This is something we grow in. That's why it's a discipleship process. That's why we need the people that are around us because iron sharpens iron. We get to not only encourage one another, but we should challenge one another. I know this, often we like the encouraging part, but part of it is challenging one another to grow and deeper surrender to Jesus. Now, there's another group of people, though, 
And I know you're likely here too. And you'd be more the moderate people. I mean, you call yourself a Christian and you'll come to church occasionally. And, and you know, I'm glad you do, but, but you, you don't, you're not angry at God. You're not angry at Jesus. You're not, you're not scared of Jesus, but you're not sold out. Anything but that, friends. Anything but that. You mean, Jonathan, you'd rather me be angry at Jesus? Absolutely. I'd rather you be angry towards Jesus than to live in this moderate state because you don't know Jesus then. Because Jesus provokes. Jesus commands and is asked. It's big. It's hard. It either produces an anger or it produces a bowed knee. But the moderate version of Jesus, that's not the real version of Jesus. That's not who he is. He's not the guy we call every time for help, but we're never prepared to bow our knee to him. It's a process though, friends. It's not easy. This is the amazing thing about Matthew chapter 2. This hostility that comes when Jesus enters this world is the same hostility we feel when we're trying to follow Jesus and we're learning to surrender our lives. But that's not all Jesus does. When he arrives and he makes his home, there's some hostility. But you know what Jesus is also? He's a disruptor. Where Jesus goes, things get a little disruptive. Now, this should be an amazing truth. This is leading you to a place of great hope. But Jesus was this disruptor. When he came back from Egypt, Joseph and Mary, they come back and they come to Judea and they want to live in Judea. But it says Herod Archelaus was there. And Joseph feared Archelaus and he went on to Galilee and Nazareth. And the reason being is Archelaus was a lot like his father, Herod the Great, a brutal, brutal leader. But I would argue Archelaus was even more dangerous because he was reckless and impulsive public mass murders and executions. He was a, a terrible leader. And then, so, so Joseph went on, and it says in verse 23, it says this. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, this is more amazing than you realize. The savior of the world, the most influential person to ever walk in this planet, came from... Nazareth. Now, to get a context for this, there couldn't have been a more insignificant place for the Savior to have been born. In fact, in John chapter 1, we have this incredible dialogue. It's humorous, actually. A Philip has encountered Jesus for the first time, and he's blown away. Just blown away. This man teaches with authority. He has power. And he says to his best friend, Nathaniel, says, listen, I think he's the Messiah. You've got to come and see this rabbi. And Nathaniel, in turn, Nathaniel says, well, where is this rabbi? Where's this Jesus from? Philip says, Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response is amazing. He said, Nazareth? Can anything significant, can anyone important come from Nazareth? There's no way. See, every culture, every world, every planet has a pecking order. Every neighbor, every city has neighborhoods that are posh and exclusive, where important people live with lots of money. And then they have neighborhoods at the other end of the spectrum, do they not? There was no exception here in Israel at that time. There's Jerusalem, and at the other end of the spectrum, there's Nazareth. Like, can anything come from Nazareth? Like, in our modern day, we, we live in the city of Toronto. What a great city this is. 
I mean, there's millions of people that live in this city. It is the most diverse city, according to the United Nations, in the world. It is the economic engine of Canada. At one end of the spectrum, there is Toronto. At the other end of the spectrum, there is Tilt Cove, Newfoundland, with a population of four. You can go and see a great interview online. Margaret Collins is the town clerk in Tilt Cove, Newfoundland. Her husband, Don, is the mayor. And their two next-door neighbors, her brother and sister-in-law, are the town clerks. I love it. What a life. And here's what she says in her interview about Tilt Cove. She says, we all love living in Tilt Cove. There's a peacefulness and quietness there. <laughs> Go figure, right? As funny as it would be to imagine that the cure from cancer would come from Tilt Cove, Newfoundland. That some significant world leader would rise up from Tilt Cove. It was that funny for Nathaniel to hear that Jesus was from Nazareth. But right from the beginning of Jesus' life, God is serving notice. I don't do things the same way this culture and world does. I don't look at things the same way this world does. And you can see it throughout the Bible. Jesus is so disruptive. So let me do a little survey here. How many of you are firstborns in your family? Can you put up your hand? All the firstborns. Put it up like you're proud. Like we want to say thank you for going first. And we also want to say you don't have to be our mom or dad anymore. Uh, but, but keep it up if you would. All the firstborns, sorry. And all the firstborn women, if you could put your hands down and the men still keep your hands up. Now, la-di-da. You guys were the important ones back in that ancient culture because the firstborn male got everything when their parents died. They got everything. They got the business. They got the money. They got the, they got the homes. They got the real estate. They got everything. And speaking as a middle child, it was not fair. But they got everything. They got everything. They were the most important. Yet throughout the Bible, God doesn't operate that way. You know, you look, when you read the Bible, you realize God chose Abel, not Cain. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Ephraim, not Manasseh. He chose David, none of his older brothers. And then you begin to read closer and you realize God has this great plan to bring salvation to every human being. And he does it through a young girl in a culture where women were less than. And he uses her. And it's not just her in Scripture. You begin to read and you realize Rebecca, the mother of Isaac, Samson's mother, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, all of these women were barren. They could not have children. And God always chooses the infertile women, the unloved women. He always does. It's old Sarah, not young Hagar. It's, it's unloved Leah. It's not beautiful Rachel. It's incredible. God always chooses Nazareth, not Rome. He chooses Tilt Cove, not Toronto. He chooses the girl that nobody wanted. He chooses the boy that nobody notices. It's incredible how God operates. And there's a part of us that feels like, yeah, that's how God rolls. That's how he works. He's for the underdog. But I'd say you have a limited understanding because it's so much more amazing than that. From the very beginning, Jesus is showing us something about salvation here. He is showing us something about how he works. Not only would Jesus come from Nazareth, a place nobody would think to look for the Messiah, but he shows us a salvation 
that this world has trouble believing to this day. You know, I grew up in this church in the east coast of Canada, and it was a church that was really big on sharing your faith with others because it was a command of Jesus. And I remember listening to an older member of our church witnessing to someone, and it went like this. They asked the person that they meant, hey, if you died tonight, any question that starts with that, you know, it's a pretty heavy question. You know, by the, by the way, great to have a party here. Hey, by the way, if you died tonight and you were to stand before Jesus and Jesus asked you this question, why should I let you into heaven? What would you respond? You know, it's amazingly how consistent most people respond to that question. They would say things like this. Well, I would say I, I try to live a good life. I was a good person. I, I tried. Some, if they had some religious background, say, I tried to live like Jesus asked me. I tried to keep the Ten Commands. In their responses, it reveals the idea of salvation in this world. And many Christians buy into this to their own detriment. That somehow it's something you can earn. Somehow that salvation comes to those who can keep morally pure. The salvation comes to those who can, you know, pull their lives together, stand up when other people are sitting down, you know, can, can pull themselves up out of the miry clay. You know, that's the type of people that God sends salvation to. And then along comes Jesus. It's for the strong, the culture would say. And Jesus comes along, and Jesus comes not from the strong. He comes from the weak. He doesn't come from Rome. He comes from Nazareth. And he goes to the cross and he says to all of human history, I have come in weakness. I have come in weakness and have only come for those who know that they are weak. Man, this is Merry Christmas, friends. Jesus has come for those who know that they are weak. He has come for those who know that they need help. He has come for those who know that they are sick. He has come for the humble and he opposes the proud. See, it is unlike what we think we can do. It is not by works. It will be by grace that salvation comes. So Jesus is disruptive. He disrupted all the norms of his day. The religious people had difficulty with him because he was constantly stripping away the barriers between God and his creation, his people. He attracted the most immoral people would be attracted and want to be with him. Why? Some of the most moral people didn't want to be with him. Why? Because he was hanging out with these people. You know, he, had, was, he, he turned the gender stereotypes on their head. Women followed him. They were a part of his leadership team. This was all part of that, that, that narrative of the Gospels. Jesus was radically disruptive. You know, we shouldn't be surprised. And the Apostle Paul says it really well. When he says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, he says, God uses the weak to confound the mighty. Another translation, God uses the weak to confound the wise. Jesus doesn't work like other people do. He doesn't work, that's why we need our thinking renewed because we often buy into the patterns of this world. So Jesus, wherever he makes his home, there's some measure of hostility, there's disruption. Here's the last one, here's the last one. When Jesus came and he cried his first cry in that nativity manger, he knew right from then on he would be cursed. Jesus came and he was cursed. See, when Jesus and Joseph and Mary, when they went to Egypt, and it's good to remember as a follower of Jesus, it's always good to remember who you follow. 
You follow a single adult. He was a single adult. He was a young man. He was not old. And he was an immigrant. And I say that to say, the church should always be a place that makes plenty of room. Plenty of room. Because that's the man that we follow. And when Herod died, they went back, back to Judea, back to Israel, back to Nazareth, back to Galilee. And it says this in verse 15. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. I'm going to dismiss the communion servers to prepare themselves if they would at this time. You know, what's interesting in Matthew 2, when Matthew uses this line, I called my son out of Egypt, it's from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now, what's fascinating is it wasn't a prophecy. The prophet spoke it, but it wasn't a prophecy. If you read Hosea chapter 11, you know what it's about? It's about Israel. It's about this story of Israel, that Israel was captive in Egypt and there were slaves. Here's the story. And God delivered them, took them out of slavery, set them free. He takes them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then God says to his people, obey me and I will bless you. And he leads them into the promised land. And this is a narrative that you see throughout the Old Testament over and over. The same narrative. The same narrative. The children of God get themselves in trouble. God delivers them. God says, obey me and I will bless you. And they don't. And you know what happens when they don't? They find themselves back in trouble. God rescues them. God says, obey me and I will bless you. And they don't. It, and you know what happens? They find themselves back in trouble again. Sound a little repetitive? And God rescues them. And God says, obey me and I will bless you. And they... And it's quiet in here. Is that familiar pattern? We don't either. Adam and Eve didn't. He says, obey me to all humankind. Obey me. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I will bless you. I will give you my peace. I will give you my shalom. I will give you my blessing. And we don't. So where's the hope, friends? Where's the hope? Well, friends, when Hosea said, I called my son out of Egypt. In the Old Testament, God often called Israel his son. But you know, Israel is supposed to be that witness to the world. But they weren't. They couldn't do it. So Jesus sent his true son. God sent his true son, Jesus. His real son. And you know what's interesting? He got in trouble. And they went to Egypt. And when he came back to Israel, he obeyed his father. In fact, he is the only human that ever earned the blessing of God because he obeyed God perfectly. But the shocking thing in Jesus' life is at the end of his life, he didn't get the blessing. At the end of his life, it wasn't a crown of gold, it was a crown of thorns. It wasn't a robe. They put a robe on him only to mock him, spit on him, and humiliate him. They tortured him, they beat him, and they killed him. What was going on here? Why would that happen? Well, he was getting the curse for our disobedience. 
Now, friends, this is the best Christmas gift anyone could get. We get his blessing from his record, and he got our curse for our record so that we wouldn't have to be cursed in this life or the one to come. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. And if you can't call yourself that, you're not open to receiving grace. A wretch like me. Remember that verse I told you to remember earlier? Rachel says this earlier in the text. Rachel weeps with her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. This comes from Jeremiah, the prophet. Rachel was a woman who died in childbirth, giving life to her son, Benjamin. What love of a mother, her life for her son's life. Friends, Jesus is our Rachel. If you've ever felt unloved, you couldn't be more wrong. If you felt insignificant and that you didn't matter, you could not be more wrong. He's your Rachel. He died. Now, religion will want you to beat your heart into submission. Disciple, try harder, try harder. Jesus wants to melt your heart. And how does he do it? Look on him, friends. Look what Jesus did for you. He's the son of God. He came into this world. He suffered the hostility and disruptiveness of this world. He put on himself the curse that was meant for all humankind. Why? So you and I could go free. You and I could experience perfect love. You and I would know life in this life, and it wouldn't be just a typical life. It would be abundant life, and we would have eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. What an incredible Christmas weekend, not just in song, but in truth. God, this tough passage of Scripture, God, illuminates in our hearts and minds, and we are aware today, God, that there is residue hostility in us against the authority of God in our lives. For those of us in this room that are struggling with that, God, we want to bring those areas of our life that are hostile to your lordship and rulership under your authority today. We say, God, forgive us. We know you only ask things of us to help us. We know you only direct us in life to guide us into better places and greener pastures. So God, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be melted and the hardness of our hearts would be melted but as we get a revelation of the love of Jesus towards us, God, Lord, we pray, Jesus, as you took the curse on you so we could be set free, as we celebrate communion together, may the realness of your sacrifice be resident in our hearts as we start this Christmas season together as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.